Malachi. And uh, our last book in the Old Testament, and last week we looked at the book of Zechariah, and I told you how that Zechariah and Malachi really uh, uh, give us two different accounts of the second coming of Christ. One focuses on one aspect of it, the other one focuses on another aspect of it. And uh, they're great, uh, the two great books, but they make up the last books uh, in the Old Testament. And with the study of Malachi, we enter in what is commonly known in theological circles as the 400 silent years. And uh, you'll find references to that phrase in different books. The old preachers used to talk about it. You don't hear it much anymore uh, because people have lost a sense of understanding about the uh, history of the Bible. But the 400 silent years are basically the time period between Malachi and the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's 400 years in history. And it's called the 400 silent years because up to this point, God had been speaking. God had been giving the books of the Bible through the prophets. God had been directing the nation of Israel. We have followed it in our study as we have come through it how that... Uh, when the times of the Gentiles come in, they go into the 70 years captivity. Then they come back at the end of the 70 years, and then uh, really there's four books that, uh, or five books that really, uh, or six books that really figure into that time period. And we've looked at the last three, Haggai, Malachi, and Zechariah, and then Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah would be the other three. And then uh, as Zachar or Malachi is written, it closes the Old Testament for us. And now we have 400 years by which God speaks to no man. The only revelation from God that comes during this 400 years are from what has already been written. And uh, this 400 silent years is a, a very key thing to understand because it'll help you with so many things. We don't have time to get into all today, nor is that my, my purpose today. But you'll find that understanding the 400 silent years helps you put down a lot of the heresy uh, that is, is taught uh, and comes into being and into play later on, even in our church age. Uh, you'll find that the uh, 14 extra books of the Apocrypha, which are uh, written during this period of time, around 250 B.C., you'll find that uh, those books are added into the canon of Scripture and you're told by those books or by the people who use those books that they are authoritative Scripture. And, of course, the reason you know that is not true is because the canon is clothed with Malachi. And for 400 years, God doesn't speak to any man through anything other than the revelation has already been written. The 400 silent years are very important because historically from the standpoint, and I'm giving you now, you know, more information on how the whole Bible goes together. So you want to, you know, at some point in your study, put this in here and get this down. It's a time when really worldly, relig uh, worldly wisdom replaces godly wisdom. You'll find that in Luke chapter 21, verse 14, uh, or 24, excuse me, 21, 24, you'll find a, a new phrase that we've talked about before called the times of the Gentiles. We know that the times of the Gentiles signal for us the end of the kingdom of heaven. You find this in Psalm 78, Lamination chapter 5, and other places. And we find now that uh, during this period of time, this is when the 
Greek Empire and the Roman Empire come to its their 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 potential uh, in that time period. And this is when all of the great philosophers live and reign. This is where all the great worldly wisdom now is de devil brings it about to cancel out the word of God and the godly wisdom, and that's exactly what happens. A little bit later on, time do we get right around the birth of Christ? We're going to find that the Old Testament has been polluted by the writers in Alexandria, Egypt, and other places that have taken the philosophical concepts of Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato, and Archimedes, and all of those guys, and they now have intermingled their philosophy with the Word of God, many times changing the Word of God to go along with the philosophical ideas of the world. And we see a time when, obviously by design, that the devil is using this 400 years to attack the Word of God, so that when the first coming of Christ shows up, or Christ comes at the first coming, uh, the Word of God and the impact of the Word of God, not only on the nation of Israel, but the world in general, will have been uh, eliminated and, and destroyed. And of course, uh, it, he does a very good job of that. Now, as we said earlier, we saw that in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and then the prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, that the Jews go back. And I think one of the real keys, and somebody brought this up uh, Thursday night when we talked about the day of small things in Zechariah, which is one of those things I just alluded to last Sunday, and then you guys picked it up and ran with it on Thursday night. But we saw that as we came through there that, uh, that the Jews go back. And I think the thing you have to understand, the thing you have to realize about the nation of Israel and when they go back is the fact that God never intended for them to ever become a great nation again. The kingdom of heaven, if you know your Bible, is clearly gone. There'll be no establishment now of the nation of Israel the way it was under David and Solomon. But rather the nation of Israel, and this is so vitally important because if you miss this, then you miss the major segment of the Bible. And, uh, but God allows the nation of Israel to go back. He orchestrates the nations to have them go back for two reasons. First of all, God wants to preserve a national presence of the nation of Israel in the land of Palestine. So he has them go back so that the Jews do not completely lose touch with their own land. Second thing that he does, he allows them to stay in the land for the preparation of the coming Messiah when the Lord Jesus Christ shows up to Israel as the Jewish Messiah uh, 400 years later. And, you know, I guess probably the most incredible study uh, in all of the Bible is to study this concept, uh, the, this 400 years, how the truth of the matter is God had now given them 39 books. We know those 39 books of the Old Testament. Once you understand that God left them in the land for a national presence so they wouldn't lose the land totally, even though they're under somebody else's iron thumb, and then when you understand that God allowed them to stay in the land because he wants to prepare them for the coming Messiah because they're going to get another chance to get a kingdom after these 400 years are up. The most incredible study for me in the Bible, uh, you know, to take and really look at this thing is the concept that during this 400 years, the reason why God did not have to write anything else, the reason why God closed the Scriptures, the reason why there's no other books in the Bible that need to have had to been written, because they have 39 books, starting with Genesis and coming to Malachi. In an Old Testament, Jewish Old Testament, they're not in the same order. They come from Genesis to Second Chronicles as their last book, but all the other books are in there. 
when you look at this, you understand that the reason why there was no need, because in those 39 books, the nation of Israel has everything they need to figure out when and who the coming Messiah is. It's the most incredible study that I've ever really understood in the Bible. And most people never get to this level in the Bible. Very frankly, most people never get back past, you know, the basic concepts of, of Christianity and some of the things that they know about the Bible. But as you move on into the Word of God, which is our plans, and to help you really get a deeper understanding of the Scriptures, one of the things that's going to really impact you in time, if you get to that point, is to realize that one of the most incredible studies is that during that 400 years, the nation of Israel in preparation for the first coming of Christ, had everything in those 39 books that they needed to figure out when he was coming, who was coming, and all the aspects of the first coming of Christ. They could have turned to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and they would have found in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that uh, it was prophesied that this Messiah would have to come from Bethlehem. They would go back to Genesis chapter 9, verse 26, and could thumb through Numbers chapter 49, verse 10, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35, or, or excuse me, Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, and they would find out that he was a Shemite. They would find out from Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, that he would be from the tribe of Judah. And uh, they would find out from Numbers chapter 24 that he's connected with a star. Remember now, in Matthew chapter 2, it is a star that takes the wise men to where the young child is. And all of these events are covered. I'm not talking about the six-pointed star of David here. The Bible defines that star in Matthew chapter 2, and that's a quite incredible study uh, in its own of the star of Bethlehem. But you're going to find from those passages, they know, exactly, uh, they know exactly what tribe he came from. They know that he was a Shemite. From Daniel chapter 9, Numbers chapter 4, and 1 Samuel chapter 2, they would know that he would have to be at least 30 years old before he started his public ministry. In Daniel chapter 2, they would find out the, the power, the world power that would be in force and in play in their own lives and their own land when Christ showed up, the Messiah, to the nation of Israel at the first coming. If that wasn't enough, if they would have went to Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 9 says, tells us about the prophecy of the 70 weeks, we talked about it when we come through the book of Daniel. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 9 shows clearly that there's going to be 483 years from the decree that Cyrus gives to go back and rebuild the land in Ezra. Exactly 483, 483 years from that point to when the Messiah shows up. In fact, <clears throat> you can figure it <clears throat> so closely. In fact, Larkin has a thing on this. There's uh, Dwight Pentecost. There's a number of the old boys that used to really believe the Bible and teach the Bible that show you how to figure this thing out. It's not hard. In fact, when you get all the information in Daniel chapter 9 of the 483 years, the 70 weeks, and put it all together, <clears throat> you'll find that figuring that out brings you up to April 6th, 33 A.D. What is April 6th, 33 A.D.? April 6, 33 A.D. is the day of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem one week before his crucifixion. We call it <coughs> Palm Sunday. It's the day that they laid down the palm leaves that he wrote in Jerusalem one week before he was crucified. From all of that information, you can come up 
and figure that thing out that closely. Now, in Matthew chapter 2, we all know the story of the wise men, and they come bearing gifts to the Lord Jesus, the baby Jesus, and that, that's a great study. But one of the keys there is the Bible says that these men, uh, wise men, came from the east. Now, east from Jerusalem, these men, or the wise men, come from Babylon. They come from the Ur of Chaldees. They come from exactly where Daniel was in his captivity when he wrote the book of Daniel. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that these men show up within two or three years of his birth. If you study the passage in Matthew, you know that Matthew is not the, not the birth of him because the Bible says he's in a house, not in a manger. He's a young child. He's not a babe. You go over to Luke, that's where he's in the manger. There's two different contexts here. I know that the world gets that all screwed up. And if you send me a Christmas card where he's in a manger with a star overhead and the wise guys, I send it back to you and tell you that you do greatly err not knowing the Scripture. No, I don't do that. <clears throat> but anyway... When they show up and they come back through here, in Matthew chapter 2, he's a young child. He's in a house. He's not in a manger. And when the wise men show up, the Bible says that uh, uh, they come bearing gifts, and those three gifts they give him represent the three offices of Christ, priest, uh, king, and uh, prophet. And yet, when they come through there, it's very obvious that these guys have studied the book of Daniel and the Old Testament. And they, unlike the nation of Israel, and I've always thought this was interesting, and I've never really taught this, but I, I believe this, and I believe that there's a credible study. I believe that those three wise men are Gentiles. I don't believe that they're Jews. I believe they're Gentiles coming from Babylon, and I think it's a great picture how that three Gentiles with a Bible that believed it couldn't figure out what a whole nation with a Bible who didn't believe it couldn't find out about the first coming of Christ. Think about that for about 20 years and let me know your conclusions. It's an incredible concept. It's a picture of us, the church, having the Bible and believing it, figuring out the concepts of Christ when the nation of Israel has it and don't believe it and can't find anything about it. But these wise men were using the Bible, Daniel in particular, Old Testament in general, and they had come to the conclusion that the nation of Israel couldn't get to because of the rejection of the Word of God, that Christ was going to be born in Bethlehem, right on the button, and they show up, and they show up within one or two years of his birth. And that's the time element you're working with, given all the variables that are in it. And they show up right in that time period. I'll tell you something else. Herod is an unsaved man. And Herod knows more about the Bible than most Christians do today why do you think he had every baby killed from three years old and down? Because he knew the time element was in there between one and three years. He just covered it. Why didn't he kill him between one and five? Why didn't he kill him between one and two? Why didn't he just kill all the babies from one to ten? Why didn't he just say, hey, let's kill everybody? Well, the bottom line is, is he knew the Scriptures well enough or was around people who knew the Scriptures well enough that put a bug in his ear and said, hey, look, Herod, you got to kill him from three years down because from Daniel this, we got all this, we got all this. We don't have all the keys, but he's somewhere within that one to three year range if he's anywhere at all. So Herod just had all the babies killed from three years old and down. It's basic Bible for those of us that believe it. And yet, one of the incredible things that I 
that I look at, and I, I ask myself this many, many times when I'm studying the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. I ask myself, with all that information in the Old Testament, with everything that they needed, with everything that they needed in that old 39 books of the Bible, how in the world did the nation of Israel miss the first coming of Christ? And then, of course, before that is out of my mouth, the great parallel flashes through my brains. They miss it the same way that we, with the whole Bible, with all the information we have, will miss the second coming of Christ. It's the same parallel. They missed it because they didn't believe what God gave them. And we'll miss it because we do not believe the book God gave us that tells us all the details. This is why Paul says in one of the seven things he tells you not to be ignorant about. He says, I would not be ignorant of this thing. And he talks about the fact that the, the Lord is coming. The second coming of Christ is one of those things. He says, of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. He's giving you, telling you that in that Bible... I mean, all they had was 39 books of the Old Testament, and they could figure out when you got the complete New Testament, you can figure out the first coming and the second coming. I'm not saying you're going to know the day and the hour. Nobody knows that. But I'm telling you this, you're not to be ignorant of the times and the seasons. And that's what Paul says. No man knoweth the day and the hour, and any man that tells you he's going to come back on this day and this particular year is an idiot. You don't know that, but you sure do know that you're living in the times when he is coming. As we used to play, when we used to play the game hide and seek, and everybody went in and hided, the guy that was the guy that was designated to go find you would turn around and yell, Ready or not, here I come. Well, some of us are hiding from God, and I can hear the angels crawling from heaven. Ready or not, here he comes. He'll find you. He'll find you. Now, having learned very little from all they had been through, the nation of Israel goes right back into the apostasy which... Uh, they are into, and the 400 years roll on. And the devil does his work, and as I've already said, during that 400 years, he brings us to the place where uh, he rises the Greek Empire, he brings up the Roman Empire, and they work overtime. They work 24 hours, 7 days a week, in destroying any continuity, any consistency, any relevance to the Word of God in anybody's life. And boy, he goes to work on those 400 years, but all through those 400 years, there is still a book, the Old Testament, which stays true and is the book that if you wanted to find out where you're at in relationship to Christ's coming, you could find it out in spite of everything else that was being done during that period of time. Now, the theme of Malachi. The theme of Malachi, as we said, is the second coming of Christ. Now, in the last book we looked at, it also was the second coming of Christ, and Christ was portrayed as an army general. He was portrayed as the of Zechariah chapter 14 and Joel chapter 2 and many other places, Isaiah chapter 63, as an army on white horses coming back to kick the fire out of everybody on planet Earth and take the kingdom by force. That's the book of, that's the book of, of uh, Zechariah. In Malachi... He's portrayed differently. He's portrayed as the son of righteousness. And as the son of righteousness, he's portrayed in one of the greatest books in the Old Testament that give you so much information on all the different aspects of, of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to come through this chapter by chapter today, because that's the only real way to break this down. But let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask God to give us some wisdom and insight as we look at it. Father, we thank you and praise you today for the Lord Jesus. Again, 
We come to you today loving you, trusting you, and believing your book. And Lord, we ask you to open up our hearts today that you'll give us wisdom and insight into all the things we need to see and understand. Uh, Lord, allow us to believe your word. Don't allow us to be like the nation of Israel that rejected what you said. Give us, Father, all that you have for us, and we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now in chapter 1, verse 1, we'll start with that. It says, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And then what follows in verses 2 through verse uh, 5, really, uh, is a, uh, another retake on the uh, Esau and Jacob concept. And we know that uh, in verse 4, he says, uh, Whereas Edom, now Edom, we've already learned from our study that Edom is Esau. Where our Edom saith, we are impoverished, we will return and build the desolate places, saith the Lord of hosts. They shall build, but I will throw down. They shall call them of the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation uh, forever. Now that is one of the most, most anti, uh, one of the most discriminatory pieces of hate literature that you're ever going to find anywhere. Now we live in a world today that just has a hard time uh, with uh, uh, with with things that are different. And this world works overtime to make sure that it makes sure that everything, everybody looks at everything like it's the same, even though it wasn't. And of course, uh, we're looking at a time where now we're coming through all different segments of this. And you obviously now there was a time when you know that uh, there was a difference between gay people and straight people. The overtime effort is to get everybody accepted as one. See, there was a time there was a difference between men and women. Now the overall thing that for the last 40 years is to get them as one. And, uh, and now we're seeing that there was a time when there were differences between Bible Christianity and all the false religions of the world. Now we're working overtime and getting them all to be one, you see. And you can't make any statements from the political arena or a public service area about any other religion. I'm talking about the Muslims or the whoever. Yeah, and you see, and of course, uh, when you do that, then you just, oh, it's just, it's a terrible thing. The Bible never has the problem of worrying about being politically correct. The Bible never worries about saying anything to offend anybody. In fact, as the world works 24-7 to bring everybody together and make everybody nice, God works 24-7 the other way to make everybody ticked off and show them and, and offend them. I mean, that's the Bible. The Bible, God has one thing. He, likes to, he wrote it to offend you. Because in offending you, he'll get, you'll get, maybe you will think about the truth instead of living with your head in the sand and, and going through life. So we see in verse 4 that he's talking about the Edomites. The Edomites are the Arabians, Saudi Arabia. And from them come all of the Iraqis, the Iranians. They all come from Ishmael, and uh, they all come from... Uh, uh, those nations back there. We studied it on New Year's Eve when we came through it. And of course, what he's got here is he's talking about the fact that what he's saying in the first four, verse four or five verses here, that simply that the, the Edomites, all of the nations over there that are against Israel, try as they will to establish their borders. And boy, they're working on it. Try as they will to establish themselves. The Bible says that God is against them. And the Bible says, the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. The Bible says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. We talked about it in, in Romans chapter 11. We saw it go back to the book of Genesis, where the Bible says that when Jason, Jacob and Esau were struggling in the wombs of their mother, that the Bible says that there's two nations, 
in, those, in that womb. And those two nations grow up, one to be the nation of Israel, the other one to be the Arab nation. And, of course, it becomes a problem where all down through history, all down through history, we find the great struggle between the nation of Israel, God's people, and Satan's people, which are the uh, Muslim nations over there. And, uh, boy, you say that, and you get clobbered too. But that's just the way that it is. You see, uh, and somebody said, well, you know what, that's the Old Testament. No, 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 you're wrong. That's also the New Testament because you go over to Galatians chapter 4, verses 22 and 31. He gets much more, much more exact. And he talks in that great chapter of how that, uh, that a man had two children. And he talks, about, uh, he talks about Ishmael and he talks about Hagar and Abraham and how he had two sons. He said one was of the spirit and one was of the flesh. And, of course, uh, he's talking about Isaac and Ishmael here. And he's showing you that uh, one was of a free woman, the other one was of a bond woman. And he's saying at the end of that chapter, he says, what are we going to do? He says, we're going to... And then he talks about that it's Arabia, Mount Sinai, is where they're living. And the final analysis there is the same as final analysis here. He says, what are we going to do about all this? He says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to drop kick through the goalposts of life the Ishmael, and that land is going to belong to Isaac. And there isn't any way you can get around it. God throws them out. We saw it when we studied the book of Obadiah, which is written against the Edomites. We talked about it in great, great detail. And God is going to throw out the Muslims. Now, the fact that American national foreign policy doesn't like that, the fact that the news media, the ACLU, and everybody else, and all the anti-defamation leagues, and everybody out there doesn't like that means absolutely nothing to God. Because they're going out with them. And the bottom line is, God has a plan, and any nation, any country, as any individual, can either get on the bus that's going the way God's going, or get on the bus that's going the other way. And obviously the world has got on the bus going the other way. And a Bible believer needs to be on the bus that's going God's way and recognize what God is doing. And of course, here again in the book of Malachi, getting ready for the second coming of Christ, we find a slam dunk against the Edomites. The nations that are the nations that are bordering the nation of Israel over there right now, Iraq and Iran, and all of the things. <clears throat> and <clears throat> unfortunately, America still hasn't figured the thing out. You see, and I don't, I'm not going to get off the track this morning in this thing, but you wait till, you wait till, you wait till Iran gets the atom bomb. Just wait. And you see, all the liberals in this country, they want to take a, they want to take a slow policy that simply says, uh, back off, don't be this, don't be that. We should have never went into Iraq. We should have never do this. You know, uh, if you want to beat the Iraqis, you want to beat down terrorism, terrorism, you know, invite them to a shuffleboard game, you know, and whoever wins gets the win, you know, and, and that's the way they think about it. And the bottom line is, they don't understand that concept. They do not understand anything but brutal violence. That's how they were raised from a little kid. That's how they were taught. They were, they were taught to, to, to kill everybody other than Muslims all of their life from the time that they began to understand what somebody was saying to them. It was hate Jews and hate a Westerners, you and I being a Westerners. And uh, this little toe dance we're doing over there in Iraq, you know, where all this stuff and you do this and that, just wait, just wait. Just wait till Iran gets a bomb. And we won't do a thing about it. Oh, we'll talk big. 
You know what? The Iraqi world and the Muslim world is just like you and I were growing up with our mom and dad. We know how many times mom and dad were going to say, I'm not going to tell you again, and we keep on doing. And we, somebody, if you had a brother and sister, they were good for counting how many times mother said that. Because everybody understood you had at least 22 times before mom ever really did anything. And they're the same way. They hear us get up and rattle our sabers and talk about this and that, and they say, we're going to stop you. What are you going to do? Well, we're not going to send you McDonald's. That's what we're going to do. We're going to sanction you. We're not going to give you any Big Macs. We're not going to give you any Burger King. You're going to have to go someplace else to get Kentucky Fried Chicken. We're going to show you how tough we are. And you see, that's exactly what we are. Sanctions won't work. Never have worked. There's only one thing that's going to happen around here, and it's the only thing that really will work, and that is one big World War III. Now, don't get dismayed at that, and I'm not a preacher of doom. I think you just got to get through that to get to the other side. And it's coming because the Bible tells you it's coming. And uh, I don't have all the details out, and I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of the prophet, but I'm not an idiot either. And I can understand that this thing over there is exactly what we're reading in Malachi, that God is going to kick them out. And before God kicks, he kicks them out of the second coming of Christ. Well, if he, duh, if he's kicking them out, then they've got to be something great when he comes back that they're not right now. And they're going to be. They're going to be. You see, we used to worry about the Cold War. We used to worry about the Russians. You don't have to worry about the Russians anymore. They're almost totally taken over by the Muslims. We don't have to worry about the Europeans anymore. They're 95% Muslim. The Muslims are fast approaching where they're going to overpopulate everybody else in this world. And you know what? Give them an atom bomb and look out. I mean, uh, it's going to be a great picnic and you and I are going to be the weenies. It's going to be a wonderful time. But it's got to go there before the Lord comes back. And you just got to understand. So when he comes into Malachi, this great book that deals with the second coming of Christ, the first thing he wants to draw your attention to is what's going on in the Middle East right now with Edom. The Edomites. And you know the history of the Edomites. They were the servants of the nation of Israel. They revolted in the Old Testament under David. And then they, they turned with the, the Nebuchadnezzar and Shennacherib against the nation of Israel just like they'll turn with the Antichrist against the nation of Israel at the second coming of Christ. It's incredible, but that's where you're at. Then in chapter 1, verse 6, and we've got to move on here. Chapter 1, verse 6, you have a great way to study the nation of Israel. Look at it. This is a neat little kicker. 6, a son honoreth his father and a servant his master. Two ways. Two ways to study the nation of Israel. One aspect is a son. The other aspect is as a servant. And it's a great concept to, uh, to look at that because that's two ways you're going to study the nation of Israel. Then when we come into chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, here's what he says. You offer polluted bread upon mine altar, and you say, Wherein have we polluted thee? In that we say the table of the Lord is contemptible. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee, or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? Now we see where the nation of Israel's attitude is toward the sacrifices of God. And this is a great parallel. In the book of Leviticus, there are standards by which the animals you offer a sacrifice have to meet. They can't have any blemishes on them, because they all picture Christ, who was perfect, without blemish, without spot. So the, the, the Levitical sacrificial animals, they can't have any blemishes on them. They can't be blind. 
and they can't be lame. They've got to be the most perfect specimens that you have. And of course, the nation of Israel's attitude is they're keeping the best for themselves and giving God what is busted and broken and lame. Now think about that. God says, I have standards of my sacrifice. And then he gets a little sarcasm in there and he says, hey, take those same mealy mouth sacrifices you're trying to give me and take them to your governor and see if he's happy with them. He wouldn't be. And he's saying, if your governor isn't happy with you breaking down a broken down sacrifice that is worthless, what more do you think I'm going to accept them as God Almighty who set down the standards in Leviticus for sacrifices? And of course, you know what he's saying? He's saying when God's people keep the best for themselves and give God what's left over, then the table of the Lord becomes contemptible. And what he's saying here is, very clearly and plainly, that Israel has lost the value of sacrifice. They're bringing polluted sacrifices. And the parallels is incredible, because that's exactly what we do as God's people today. We have no idea what God looks for in sacrifices. We have no idea. We think because we're in the New Testament, we don't have to bring lambs or sheep or cattle or whatever, that, uh, you know, uh, that uh, sacrifices don't even apply to us. We don't understand the Scriptures. The Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, but in mercy of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. We do not understand that concept. And what we call sacrifice today, God calls contemptible. What we call giving to God ourselves, what we do, basically, is we give God what's left over. Now, understand. I realize if you're a young Christian here and you're still learning the process and, or you're someone that, that wants to learn the process, I'm not talking about you. Uh, you. There's a process of growth that you go through that you're in that process. I'm talking about somebody who's been saved 20, 30, 40 years. I'm talking about people who, who claim to have a very dynamite relationship with the Lord. I'm talking about people that, that uh, uh, you would look to as leaders in Christianity and people, what I'm saying is we have lost the value system and young Christians, as they grow, they, obviously they have struggles, but as they grow, they will learn the right concepts of the right things. The nation of Israel, as the leaders of Christianity today, are not in that category. No, no, they've come to the point where they have so misdefined what sacrifice is. Sacrifice now to most pastors is, what can you do for me? What can you do for me, make me more successful? What can you give to this church to make it bigger and more beautiful? What can, they don't understand that true sacrifice lies within the heart of every believer, and the job of the church and the pastor is to teach you how to cultivate that point in your life where you really understand what it takes to serve God in a sacrificial way. Presenting body, your body as a living sacrifice. Christ died on the cross. He became a total, complete sacrifice for you and for me. The Bible says over and over. It was total. It was complete. It finished the law. It contained everything in the law. And Colossians chapter 2 says once he made that sacrifice, the Old Testament was nailed to his cross. Why? Because he fulfilled it and he completed it. Well, let me say this. He doesn't ask you to die for him. Though maybe some of you will. But he doesn't ask us to die for him. He asks us to become a living sacrifice for him. And you know, in a lot of ways, that's harder than dying for him. 
Somebody said, well, I'd die for God. Well, I say, well, that's not tough. Anybody can die. Can you live for him? That's what's tough. I mean, you die for God, you get a bullet in the head, it's over in a minute. Or if they burn you at the stake and take quite a minute, but it's over in a little while. If they cut your head off, it's over even quicker. That's a, that sounds sound like a gross thing to me, you know. But you know what? Getting your head cut off is probably better than any other way to die. I mean, I don't like it, and I don't think about it. And I would, you know, if you're going to cut your head off, I'd always be worried about the guy getting me a clean cut, you know. I, I worry about things. I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about things like that. I mean, let me ask you a question. If you had your choice and you were going to be persecuted for Christ and they were going to kill you and they say they were going to cut your head off or burn you at the stake, which would you take? To me, I don't have to think about it. Hot steak's better than a cold chop any day. (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. What I'm saying is this. You know what? It's easy to die for him. What he's asked us to do is to live for him. That's the key. But I'm telling you, when you live for him, he died for you. But when you live for him, that sacrifice, Romans chapter 12, has to be just as complete and just as perfect and just as dedicated as you live as it was for he that died for you on the cross. And it's just come simple as that. Simple as that. And now the nation of Israel has come to the place where they have polluted those sacrifices. And what we call sacrifice, God calls contemptible. Then in chapter 2, oh, there's a great concept here. And in chapter 2, he says this in verses 1 through 7. He says, and now, O ye priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, and if you will not lay it to heart, uh, to give glory unto my name, saith the Lord of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you, and will curse your blessings. Yea, I have cursed them already, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will corrupt your seed and spread dung upon your faces, even the dung of your solemn feast. That's gross. And one shall take away, uh, uh, take you away with it. And you shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you. And uh, my commandment might be with Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him uh, of life and peace. Watch it. I gave him uh, them unto him for the fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth, and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity. That's balance. He did turn many away from iniquity. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the measured messenger of the Lord of hosts. Now, that's a great concept, because it's showing you that the real problem in Israel is the same problem we got. That's corrupt leadership. Because he said down through there that God picked one tribe, out of 12, one tribe out of 12, God chose one tribe out of 12 to keep the law of truth, verse 6, whose lips should keep knowledge, verse 7, who walked with God in peace and equity, verse 6, who, verse 5 says, had the covenant of life and peace from God, and they feared God. And then verse 7 says that this tribe is the, is the messenger of God. Now, in the Old Testament, that was the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi was the custodianship of the Word of God. Nobody outside the Levite ever wrote anything down that God said. If it did, it wasn't worth the paper it was written on. It was given to the priestly tribe, and the priestly tribe was the tribe that dictated spirituality to everybody else. Now, the concept is simple. 
God's Word, God's truth, should abide in the hearts and the lips of God's priests. You can see that. And the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that if you and I are saved, born again, then the truth of God, the knowledge of God, the covenants of God, and everything that goes along with God should be with us, the priests. And that's why I tell you over and over and over again, over and over and over again, that the study in the Bible is a study of a battle. And it's the battle of somebody trying to take away from the body of Christ, you and me. Now, everybody in here that's saved, you are an individual priest. Not in the sense of the Roman Catholic Church or the Lutheran Church or whatever church, but in the sense of the Bible that you and I are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 5 and chapter 7, it talks about the difference between the Old Testament priesthood and the New Testament priesthood. The Old Testament priesthood was a literal tribe made up of literal men and women that begot children that became priests. The New Testament priesthood, you and I, are made up of men and women that are a spiritual priesthood that you get born into by a spiritual birth that makes you born again and in God's family. And at that moment, you're a priest. That's why when you go down through history, you can find every kind of thing you want to find, but if you want to find the truth, just make it real simple. Always just find the true body of Christ, the priest in the New Testament sense, and there you will find the Word of God. The Word of God was always with the priest. Anytime it wasn't with the priest, the Word of God was worthless. And in all down through the history of the New Testament church, if you want to find truth, find the true priest that are following the New Testament Bible, not some kind of scholarship concept, and you will find you will find the knowledge of God. You will find the truth. You will find everything that you need. In fact, you'll find that in the book of Revelation, we've talked about this before, Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3, really 2 and 3, talk about the seven periods of church history. And we've laid all this out before. It's nothing new. It starts with Christ in the church of Ephesus, winds up in the church that you and I are in, the church of Laodicea. It runs from 33 A.D. to the rapture of the church. We know that the greatest period of time in that period is the Philadelphian church. That's the one right before uh, ours, which runs from 1600 to about 1900. And we've been through this before. And you're going to find that he's, he talks about that great church in Revelation chapter 3, and he, he lays out all the great concepts. He tells you over and over again that that church keeps the Word of God. They have the true Word of God. It's called the church of the open door. It's called, it's got the key of David. It's got everything, and the key of David is Psalm 119. It was the key to David's relationship with God, which comes back to being the Word of God. And you'll find all of these things the Philadelphian church has, and then you'll find in verse 10 a warning. He says, be careful, because there's an hour of temptation coming upon all the world. He said to this great church, he said, there's a great hour of temptation which is going to come upon all the world. And that great hour of temptation came upon the world. And that great hour of temptation ended the Philadelphian church age and brought us into the Laodicean church age. That hour of temptation was for the priest, you and me, to give up ownership of the truth and give it to PhDs, doctors of theology, and everybody else and say, here, you keep it. Let truth be in the universities, not in the hearts of God's people. And that temptation came around the end of the 19th century, 
when you see the revolutionary ideas of science, scholarship is projected to a greater, no greater high ever in history. Everybody wanted to be a scholar. Everybody wanted to be recognized by the Scholars Union. And the Word of God was given up by the common ordinary man, the priest class, who had held it dearly all through the Philadelphian church age. Now it's given up. And that great hour of temptation, he says to them, he says, hold fast what you have. And the only thing they have is the Word of God. He says, lest some men take thy crown. And boy, there's no greater lesson than the lesson of Malachi chapter 2. It started out with, look at this, it started out with the Levites. Custodianship of the Word of God in the Old Testament. You know where it wound up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees. They're not even of the tribe of Levi. Nobody knows who the tribe of Levi is at the first coming of Christ. But here you've got, because from point A to point B, 400 years, you've got a complete corrupt system that has taken the Word of God from the men that God gave it, the priest, and put it with the great theologians, the intellectuals, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees who have one Goal and mission. Hey, they hate each other individually. Oh, scribes hated the Pharisees. The Pharisees hated the scribes. The Sadducees hated everybody. If there's ever a place where you have three groups of Baptists, there it is. They hate everybody. They don't get along with each other at all. One of them believes there's a resurrection, the other one doesn't. The other one believes that their God gifts to mankind, the other one curses them and hates them. Those three people never get along. And they replace Levi as the body of truth that God chose. And somewhere in the process of those 400 years, it got changed and taken from God's people to an intellectual crowd of baboons who know nothing about God and can't get along with each other and there's only one thing they can all agree on. You know what it is? They all hate Christ when he shows up with the first coming of Christ. Instructive. As they say over in bloody old England, hey what, doctor? Instructive. They drop it here, all three here. They can't stand each other, but they can build a common ground when it comes to Christ showing up the first time. They hate him. They hate him. They hate him. And I'm telling you, there's some great parallels there. From Levi to the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. My, my, my. What a trip. What a trip. And that's what he's saying here in chapter 2. He's talking about that it was Levi that had the word of truth, the life, the covenants, peace, equity, balance. God gave it to them. And if Israel wanted to get it, they had to get it from them. Hey, that's you and me today. You see, we have a great advantage over the Levi tribe. I mean, the Levi tribe, they, they, were, they, they didn't have the Spirit of God living inside them. They had to operate as a tribe with a high priest. God met with a high priest and disseminated information through the high priest to everybody else. But you see, you and I don't have that problem because once you got saved in the New Testament, God lives inside you. And you have everything that God is living inside you. You don't have to come to me to find truth. I mean, I understand the concept of the church and I understand the concept of a pastor and the structure and the order. I understand all of that. But the bottom line is, you have as much of the Holy Spirit of God living in you as I got in me. 
And I know there's a process of growth and there's a process of learning, but the end result is this. Hey, when I die, who's going to take over? You're all going to stay just spiritual where you're at right now? I mean, uh, when, 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 it, when, it, when things change and somebody leaves or somebody goes, who's going to step in and take the spot? There has, to be a, there has to be a natural process of spiritual growth that men and women mature in the Word of God to the point where they understand that they are priests, they have the Holy Spirit of God just like the greatest preacher you ever heard in your life, the greatest Bible teacher you ever heard in your life. You have the potential to be just like that and know that and do that and be that and to figure things out for you. He's got nothing on you. He doesn't have more of the Holy Spirit of God. It may be the Holy Spirit of God's got more of him, but he don't have more of it than you got. There's no reason why, because the bottom concept in the New Testament is we are the priesthood. You have the ability to have everything that God wants you to have. So then we get into chapter 3. In chapter 3. It's a great prophetic chapter on John the Baptist at the first coming of Christ. He said, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide in the day of his coming, and who shall uh, who shall stand when he appeareth, for he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto, unto the Lord, as in the days of old, Solomon and David, as in the former years, back in the Old Testament. I will come near to you to judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against the false swear. Ah, false swear. There it is. There's where we were in Zechariah the other Thursday night. Remember that thing? Somebody asked about the thing over there and about the swears. There it is. There's another verse for you. And against those that oppress the hireling to his wages and the widow to the fatherless and turn aside the stranger from his right and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. I, for I am the Lord. Great verse. Salient verse. For I am the Lord. I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. You know what you got in chapter 3? You got an overview of that great unconditional covenant that God gave to the nation of Israel when he gave it to Abraham. He said down there in the last part of that verse, For I am the Lord, I change not. God doesn't change. Now that's why I've told you before that one of the greatest aspects of learning the Bible is understanding that God is consistent in what he says. Once the Bible lays something out, it will always stay the consistent way. You know why? Because God doesn't change. That brings up one of the greatest ways to study God is to study the things that are consistent. That's why when God starts out by doing everything in six days and resting on the seventh, you can take that to the bank through the next 31,179 verses in the Bible. It's consistent. God does everything by a system of seven. That's why when the Bible lays things out and, and lays things out for you, you can learn more because wherever you go and find it. And I tell you that all the time. I give you the key words. In fact, on the back of that little, little bookmark, is all not all, but a lot of the key words. And those things, you learn the Bible by the context because of its consistency. That's, that's the way it works. That's what he's talking about. <clears throat> and he's talking about down here, for I am the Lord, I change not. So the fact that God doesn't change, Hebrews chapter 13 says, Jesus, uh, verse 8 says, Jesus Christ the same today, yesterday, and forever. He doesn't change. 
His Bible doesn't change. And the principles don't change. Now, what is he talking about here specifically? He's talking about the nation of Israel. Sure, I know there's a practical application that God's Bible doesn't change, God's principles doesn't change, and that's why I can tell you that you want to live your life right, you want to do what's right with your life, you want to learn how to have a victorious Christian life, good marriage, raise your kids right, do whatever the case may be, follow the principles. The principles don't change. They're dateless. They're endless. They will just go on and on and on, and they are fixed. But just as fixed as God's God's concept of the nation of Israel. Hey, God is just as true to His covenant now in 2000. Uh, 5 uh, A.D. as he was back there in 1918 uh, uh, B.C. when he met Abraham back there in Genesis chapter 12 and called him out of the earth of Chaldees. When he said back there, someday your stars, your seed's going to be like the stars of heaven. He's just as committed to that plan today as he was back then. He hasn't wavered. In fact, everything in history from that point A to point B has been about preparing for that and God's right on schedule. God doesn't change. We change. Governments change. Presidents change, congressmen change, senators change, rules change, laws change, cities change, ordinances change. God never changes anything. That's why morality changes, society changes. That's why the only thing that you can bet on that will never change is God in a book. Therefore, you have an absolute standard when everything does change. Ah, it's so simple. It's so easy. It's so easy. And then he says down here, but therefore ye sons of Jacob, ah, that's Israel, are not consumed. I like that phrase. In fact, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. You know why? Because that little phrase there, ye sons of Jacob, are not consumed. You go back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 2, you'll find that little word consumed again. I love that word. I, love, I think it's only two times in the Bible. I may be wrong, but uh, I think it's only two times in the Bible. That little word consumed is a great word. Because the word consume, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. You know what he's making a reference to? Remember back there when, when Moses was up on Mount uh, Sinai and he was down there and God appeared to him? And, uh, you, you know, you, if you ever saw the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, you know, uh, that's a great thing. I love that movie. And, uh, in, 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 uh, and Moses is up there and all of a sudden he looks over here and there's a bush that's on fire. That bush is burning. You know, they found that bush, by the way. No, you're laughing. They found it. It's over St. Catherine's Monastery, Mount Sinai. If you went there, well, that's where they found the Sinaiticus manuscripts. And if you walk into Sinaiticus Man Monastery over there in the Sinai, that's where it's at. You walk into there, over here in the corner is a bush, and this is the burning bush. It's out of gas, but that is the burning bush. That's where, that's where Moses stood, and they'll show you. They'll go over there, and they'll show you this bush here was the burning bush in Exodus. It was on fire, and this is what Moses spoke to and spoke to me. We got it, see? So we're the right religion. We got the burning bush, see? I mean, that's where it's at. I mean, ask me. I know these things. I made my pilgrimage to the burning bush. I know. That's why I'm so spiritual. I've been there. And they come down through there, and they said, uh, Jacob goes over there, and that bush is burning. And it tells you in Exodus chapter 3, verse 2, that the bush was burning, but it was not consumed. You know why? Because that, you know why God chose to speak to Israel through a burning bush that wasn't consumed? You think God down the line wanted to make Cecil B. DeMille's popular by making a movie, so he gave him some prop? No, no, no. That burning bush is the picture of the nation of Israel. That bush burning and not being consumed was the way God spoke to Moses because it represented, right here, Jesus Christ is going to never change 
and the sons of Jacob will not be consumed. The whole world for 5,000 years has burned them. Hitler put them in the ovens. Everybody tried to destroy them. They burned them down through history. And you know what? As the old movie says, they're still here. They ain't going anywhere. You know why? Because they are a picture of the bush that is burned but is never consumed. And you can try to take everything about the nation of Israel and destroy them. You can put all your endeavors into trying to get rid of them, which mankind has done under the direction of the devil for 5,000 years. And at the end of the day, they are still here. They are the bush that is burned but is not consumed. And that's what Moses saw. That's how God appeared to show him that, you know what? This nation that I'm going to give the law to is going to be around when nobody else is. And God hasn't changed. God's concept about the nation of Israel has not changed. It has not changed. There are unconditional promises given to the nation of Israel that have not changed. He says, for I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed, are not consumed. And that bush burned back there and was not consumed. And by the way, it is not the one in St. Catherine's Monastery in Sinai, just in case you thought it was. But that's what they claim. But anyway, they've also got the head of John the Baptist when he was an adult and a boy. They've got it all. <laughs> then Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. And boy, what a, great, what a great verse this is. I love this too. Malachi is a, is a great book. He says, Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and, and a book of remembrance was written before him that, for them that feared the Lord and thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day, notice the second coming of Christ, when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth them. Ah, you see the two concepts come back? Son and servant, son and servant right there? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. One more, yeah, and I'm done. Yeah, okay. Oh, it's all through there. All through there. Now, you know what you got here? You got some great words that lay out the context that day. We know that's the second coming. Make up my jewels. We know that's people from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And then he talks about, like he said in 1 6, uh, my son, and, that, and, and it serves him, the servant, chapter 1, verse 6. But, you know, last week we talked about, uh, and I, uh, we, we, when we come through the book of. Uh, Zechariah, and I told you how in, in that chapter there where, Zechariah chapter 3, where Joshua the high priest is standing before the Lord and Satan's at the right hand. And I told you about the concept of that had to be a picture, or most likely is a picture, of what takes place in Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, when the dead stand before God and a book was opened. And their name is found in the book of life. Now Mal Malachi chapter 3, verse 16 is that book. It is the book of life. Remember I told you last week that there's two books in the Bible. There's a book in Revelation chapter 20 verse 15 called the Book of Life. And there's a book in Revelation chapter 22 verse 27 which is called the Lamb's Book of Life. One deals with the Old Testament nation of Israel. One obviously deals with the church. The Lamb's Book of Life would be to the church because we're saved by the blood of a lamb. And in Revelation chapter 22 the context there is the church, New Jerusalem. It isn't anything in the Old Testament. But Revelation chapter 20, verse 15 is the Old Testament. is anything to do with the church. So you find that the book of life is a book of remembrance. 
that God writes down, look, look, at the, look at the qualifications here. A book of remembrance was written before him that feared the Lord and thought upon his name. That's the qualification for somebody in the Old Testament to get God's righteousness. They fear the Lord. Bible says Noah moved with fear. Everybody, that, it's all, that's a part of the concept. They reverenced God. They recognized God. They feared God. And they thought about God. God was in their thoughts, unlike the nation of Israel. And God writes their name down in the book of life. That book comes up in Revelation chapter 20. It's a great white throne judgment. Their name is found in the book of life. And that's what it's talking about. God's book of remembrance. And that's what he's saying in Revelation when he says, in another book, and he says, and the dead stone before great, and the books were opened. The books, plural, are all 66 books of the Bible. Then he says, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. That's God's book of remembrance. God writes down the names of the Old Testament saints in their righteous acts and puts them in that, and he tells you why. He tells you why. Verse 17, and they shall be mine. When? In that day, second coming. Why? When I make up my jewels, people, I will spare them, great white throne judgment, as a man spare his own son, nation of Israel, that serveth him. It's showing you every aspect you need to see and understand about that great day. And uh, it's, a, it's an incredible concept. Well, lastly, chapter 4, and then we're going to be through here. And in chapter 4, we have the great concept of, of uh, the Son of Righteousness. He says in 4.1, and you don't want to miss this, for a whole, I'm a town of left in that tape back there. I forgot my taper. Am I almost out? I got 18 minutes? Whew, got time to order a peach and some chicken wings and have them then finish this thing. 4-1, for behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and, sh and all the proud, yea, all that do wickedly, shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. All right, the context here is the second coming of Christ. It's God coming back and destroying everybody on planet earth with the Antichrist that is with him against Israel. This is where the Edomites get it. This is where the United Nations get it. This is where the Antichrist get it. This is where all the false religions get it and all the unsaved people get it. But unto you that fear my name shall watch it very carefully. The Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and he shall go forth as, and grow up as calves of the stall. And he shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under your soles of your feet in that day, second coming. And I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto them in Horeb and all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, second coming. He shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now, the thing I want you to uh, look at here is in verse 2. I told you that in the book of Malachi, Jesus Christ is portrayed as the son of righteousness. But I want you to look at it. Look at, look at the concept, the son of righteousness. Look how it's spelled. It's not spelled S-O-N, it's spelled S-U-N. And what you've got in chapter 4 of the book of Malachi, without a doubt, as far as I'm concerned, is one of the greatest key chapters, one of the greatest definitive key chapters in all of the Bible. There's so much that is defined in Malachi chapter 4, I don't even know where to begin to start. But he says, son of righteousness. Instead of spelling it S-O-N, he spelled it S-U-N. And that goes along with Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, which is another great piece of this puzzle where it says the invisible things of him, God, from the creation, Genesis chapter 1, of the world are clearly seen. How? 
by being understood the thing, by, by the things that are made. Even his eternal power in Godhead, so they're without excuse. What he's saying here is that if you want to understand spiritual things, then look at the things that God made. Because God used himself as a perfect pattern for when he made everything from the creation of the earth in Genesis chapter 1. So if you want to understand the invisible things, you can not only see them, but clearly understand them by the things that God made. All right, let's hold up there. Psalms chapter 19. Let's take a test case here. Another great definitive chapter. Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day utter his speech, night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words unto the end of the world. In them hath he said, hey, watch it, watch it, watch it. Tabernacle for the sun which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chambers, rejoicing as a strong man to run a race. His, the son, it's a he, look at it. His going forth is from the end of earth and his circuits to the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. Now, I don't know what you got in Psalm, if you know what you got in Psalm chapter 19 or not, but you got supplement of information of what you got in Malachi chapter 4. Because Romans chapter 1 says that the things that God made from the creation, you can clearly understand the things that are invisible by the things that God made. Now we got the Son. And for a wild deal, for whatever purpose, in chapter 4, verse 2, he calls the second coming of Christ the Son of Righteousness. And he spells it not S-O-N, but draws our attention to S-U-N, showing us that there's some connection between the Son of God and that big bottle of fire up there you see every day. Then when you go to Psalms 19, he says that the heavens declare the glory of God. Why? Because the things that God made that are visible declare the things that are invisible. He says the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showed his handiwork. Day unto day utter his speech. Night unto night showeth knowledge. Then it, it, it talks during the day. It talks during the night. There is no speech nor language, their voice is not heard. It transcends all the language barriers and all the culture. You realize in the Bible there's only two things that the Bible says declare God's glory. One of them is the Word of God and the other one is the heavens. And there is no speech nor language where the voice is not heard. In other words, God made the heavens and he fixed the heavens so when anybody out there in Bubango, Bubango, Africa would look up at a starry night or see the sun would scratch his head and say, I wonder how that got there. And then God's Holy Spirit would touch him. And he would either want to know more or want to know less. That's the way it works. And it says, Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he said a tabernacle. Ah, second coming of Christ during the Feast of Tabernacles. Matthew chapter 17, at the Mount of Transfiguration, they said, Shall we make thee three tabernacles? Then this son is going to tabernacle someplace. And then he breaks into a, a whole rendition on this, on this son. The son, verse 5, is as a bridegroom, that's Christ, coming out of his chamber, that's heaven, rejoicing around as a strong man, that's Christ, to run a race. His, this man, the Christ, the son, going forth is from the end of heaven and his circuit to the ends of it, from one end to the other, and look what it says, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. Why didn't he say there's nothing hid from the light thereof? 
Because the Holy Spirit of God is what searches it out, and it's something you feel, not something you see. Have you ever been in the service? Had some preacher just climbing out of the back of your net and felt like somebody turned a furnace up about 20 degrees? Don't we ain't in the world? Boy, the heat's on. Boy, you got the heat after you. Oh, the heat's on. I down there at Camp Arena. Went down to see Big Bird last yesterday. Down in the bottom. Down with the homeboys. I got to talk the language. My wife gets nervous every time we go down there. I feel right at home. I know how to say it. Hey, Holmes, how you doing? I heard him yesterday. Heat's on, homeboy. Heat's on. I knew what he meant. It meant he was been preaching someplace and had the Holy Spirit of God got him under conviction. I think it meant the police were after him, but I know what he meant. Because when the Holy Spirit comes after you, the heat's on. Heat's on. Big heat. Big heat. Heat's on. That's what he's saying. Now, you know this thing down here, he says, son of righteousness. S-U-N S-O-N. He says in Romans chapter 1, verse 19, 20, the invisible things are clearly seen and understood by the things that God made. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 9 says, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, wherein do you do well that you take heed, the word of God, as, an, uh, as a light that shineth in a dark place, the word of God. How long? Until the day star, by the way, can't see it now, but the star that's up in the day is our sun. Our sun's just a star. When people think the sun, they think that's something special. Every star you see out there at night is just like our sun. Some of them a thousand times bigger, some of them smaller. Our sun's just an average sun. But it's special to us. And he says there's coming a day, right now, we're in darkness, and we have a light that shineth in a dark place, the Word of God, but there's coming a day that the day star is going to rise in my heart. That's the rapture of the church. Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, calls Christ the morning star. He comes up in the morning. Christ in the Bible is pictured as our sun. That's why when he created it, Romans chapter 1, verse 19, everything is a picture of that. That's why the sun is the light of this world. S-U-N. That's why Jesus Christ, as the Son, is the light of this world. That's why the Son, S-U-N, is the center of our solar system, and everything revolves around the Son. And when you get saved, the Son, S-O-N, should be the center of your life, and everything should revolve around it. The moon in the Bible in Job chapter 25, verse 5, is a picture of a Christian. I know we sing the song, shine on, shine on, shine on, harvest moon, but the moon doesn't shine by its own light. The moon reflects the light from the sun. The moon is the great light of the day, Genesis. The, uh, the, the sun's a great light of the day, Genesis. The moon's a great light of the night. Night's a picture of the church age. You and I as a Christian, as the moon, are lighters of the night. Christ is the lighter of the day. But you and I don't have any light of our own to light tonight. We have to reflect the light from the sun so this old world can get some light. I mean, it's so simple. Now, when a lunar eclipse takes place, the scientific world goes bonkers. Sky and Telescope does a big ad on it. Astronomy Magazine does a big ad. Astronomy crumbs around the world. Rush and run to photograph and watch this great scientific phenomena of what they call a lunar eclipse. What happens in a lunar eclipse? The world, Earth, comes between the sun and the moon, and for a period of time, the moon is darkened. Scientists say, 
What a scientific phenomena. The Bible says, what a terrible picture of a child of God out of fellowship with God. Anytime the world comes in between you and Christ, your testimony light goes out. I go out there at night, boy, that moon when it's so bright, full moon, it's just like having the lights on. Man, you can see 500 yards in every direction. Don't need your street lights. I mean, everything is just lit up. And then there's sometimes when it's a full moon and it's a picture of a, of a child of God just beaming with the glory of God, lighting up. Everybody out there affected by the light. And then you know what happens some other times? You can go out there on a night that it's a full moon and it's just as dark as if there was no moon. You know why? Because the clouds of this old world have covered over that old moon and the light doesn't come through. And let me tell you something. Your life and my life ought to be one that just shines forth and all the world can see the glory of God. But when the clouds of this world comes in, Cuts out the light. That's why he says the son of righteousness. That's why Romans chapter 1 verse 19 and 20 says the invisible things from the creation of the world are clearly seen and understood by the things that God made. So he gives you the key in Psalms 19 and Malachi chapter 4 of son, S-U-N instead of S-O-N. Scientists in their great scientific studies talk about alpha, gamma, and x-rays. The sun gives off three types of rays, the scientists would tell us. It gives off gamma rays. It gives off alpha rays. And it gives off x-rays. The sun gives off three types of rays, which match the three persons of the Trinity. X-rays are invisible. God is a spirit. And we that seeth God must worship him in spirit. You can't see God. Light rays. That's a picture of God the sun. The light of God was Jesus Christ, but then it gives off heat rays. You don't see them, but you feel them. Type of the Holy Spirit of God. That's why Psalm 19.6 said there was nothing hid from the heat. Picture of the Holy Spirit of God. Sun comes up in the morning. Moon disappears. Picture of the rapture of the church. And yet there's times of the month when you see the moon and the sun up at the same time, don't you? Sure you do. There's a thing called the waxing and the waning moon. Out on one, the moon, when it comes up, the rap, the, the, it's a picture of the rapture and the moon is gone, type of the church. The other one, it's here and it's a picture of the second coming of Christ. Now, I don't pretend to figure all this out, but I know where to go. You know, in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, you've got a 28-day cycle, which is a cycle of the moon, that matches up to the 28 issues of life. And the last verse in verse 8, it's verse 1 through verse 8, Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, the last two things in the last verse have to do with the second coming of Christ in the millennium. Now, if you could take those 28 things and figure out the time between the waning and the waxing in the 28 days, and you could put it all together and see in that thing, you know what you got up there? You got a picture of what we can't figure out in here. That's God. That's God. I don't know how to figure it out. I'm stupid, man. I look at those things and I said, well, might as well tear that page out. I don't know what to do with it. I don't have a clue. But I know where it's at. I know that it's there. And I know that God is consistent because he never changes. And I know, brother, when I look at that thing out there and I see that old sun burning, I'm telling you. You know, there's a great debate going on in Kansas right now about teaching evolution or not. And they got the people that don't believe in, evolu believe in evolution. They want to teach it. And you got the other group who you now come up with a concept called divine intelligence or divine something. Or intelligent something. Yeah, and they come up with that concept now, and they're bittering back and forth, you know, talking about this and talking about that. And they're, you know, I listened to the talk radio last week. They went on it for 20 hours, and nobody figured the issue out. The issue isn't about 
evolution. The reason isn't about intelligent design. The issue is this world hates God and wants to get rid of every concept of God. That's what you're dealing with. Somebody says, well, I think they ought to teach creation in school. I think you ought to teach it in your home. Somebody says, well, I'm really upset. They don't pray in school anymore. I think you need to pray in your home. I don't want someone to say, man, teaching my kid about creation. I'll teach him about creation. Look at chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. I told you this last week. Moving on here. There's Moses. Look at verse 5. There's Elijah. There's the two witnesses. Zechariah chapter 4 we talked about. Ran it back to Revelation chapter 11. Concept of the day of the Lord. I told you Moses and Elijah were, were, were going to come back. Those are the two witnesses. Book of Malachi is a great book. And we've got to end. When ending this study today, we end our study of the Old Testament. Next time we pick this back up, we're going to, stock, we're going to talk about the precluding stuff before the New Testament. But in closing today, let me just say this. Let's just look at where we've been now. At the end of the Old Testament, we've seen the formulation of the nation of Israel, Genesis to Joshua. We have saw the establishment of Israel and the rejection of Israel, Judges to Second Chronicles. And we saw the times of the Gentiles, then the beginning of the start of the 400 silent years that runs from Ezra to Malachi. There's an interesting thing about the 400 years. And I'll leave you with this. It's so clear now, looking in history, that God spoke the last time in Malachi. And there was 400 years of silence till God broke the silence at the first coming of Christ. For 400 years, all that you had was what man came up with to counter what God had already said. And if God said anything in those 400 years, he said it in what he already had written in the, in the Bible that they had. And you know what? Want something interesting? You want a lesson on the consistency of God? You want a lesson on the fact that God the same today, yesterday, and forever, and he never changes? In 1611, God spoke for the last time. And he hasn't said a thing, and it's almost 400 years. You know the next time he's going to speak? Second coming of Christ. You know what's in between the last time he spoke and back there in Malachi and the first coming of Christ? All the claptrap that man puts out to disrupt the Bible. You know what's all between 1611 and the next time he speaks? All the claptrap man puts out to discredit the Bible. You won't beat the book. You know why you won't beat the book? It's consistent. It's consistent. And that's why it's the book that God is going to judge us by. And that's why it is the greatest book the world has ever seen for you and I to learn. And that's why next year... We're going to continue on. I've got, I'm going to talk to you about it next week. I've got some incredible things to help you pull your Bible together with what you do know. And at the same time, I'll continue to work one-on-one -on -one with anybody, anytime, anywhere that wants to learn the Bible. All kinds, because the whole bottom line and the whole goal of everything we do is to bring you back to this book. You know why? Because the person sitting next to you isn't going to judge you. Your mom or your dad isn't going to judge you. I'm not going to judge you. This book's going to judge you. And that's why you need to have a handle on it and know it inside and out, upside and down. And that's our job. That's our commitment to help you make sense out of the Word of God, to make sense out of your life. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus.